Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Today in Battle Rhythm, we're coming from Riga, Latvia, because I am part of a junket of academics going to the Strategic Communications Conference run by the NATO Center of Excellence on Strategic Communications. And we've also been visiting the various uh, NATO and Canadian military folks in town. And so I thought it'd be fun to talk to Justin Massey from the University of Quebec at Montreal. Uh, he is the chair of the political science department there, or political studies. Political science. Political science. He is also co-director of the uh, Network for Strategic Analysis. I'll let you pronounce the name in French. Réseau d'analyse stratégique. Yes, nobody likes to hear me speak in French. And so we thought we'd talk a little bit about what he's been up to with that stuff. And then we talk a little bit about our reactions to the visits yesterday, where we went to the Ministry of Defense of Latvia and talked to a a major about the Latvian perspective on things. And then we went over and talked to the Canadian colonel who's in charge of task force Latvia and his team and what they uh, discussed. And then today we went to Adazi, the military base, and talked to a whole bunch of different people. We talked to uh, Latvians, Canadians, and other folks about the mission. And it's a pretty exciting time to be here because they're about to rotate the Canadians out for another batch of Canadians coming up. And because everybody's looking forward to the next NATO summit in Vilnius, which is next door in Lithuania, to see if we actually keep all the promises that we've made or we make new promises that we won't keep. So before we get into that, Justin, tell us a little bit about what the Network for Strategic Analysis plans to do now that you, congratulations, have been funded for another batch of three years. Thank you very much, Steve, and thanks for hosting me on the on Battle Rhythm. Uh, yeah, I'm very happy. Uh, uh, I'm co-directing the Réseau d'Analyse Stratégique, or RAS, we can even say in English, we, we tend to use that acronym. Uh, now with Stephanie Martel, who's has replaced Stephanie Van Lecky, uh, who has become a vice dean at the Queen's University. And we're pretty much keeping up the same kind of work we've been doing the last three years, because it's been going quite well, and we had the positive feedback. But we're introducing new challenges, minds challenges. So we'll tackle climate change and security for the first time with uh, Sarah Sharma and Will Greaves that will that are joining our network. Will Greaves well. is also joining our network to do yeah. similar stuff. Exactly. Because, of course, everyone's looking into this uh, NATO uh, Center for Excellence coming to Montreal soon. It's been announced. We don't know exactly the details. Uh, and we have to develop that that um, that expertise in French as well in this country. I think I believe that the, that the réseau is a, is a good place to do that work in collaboration with others as well. And we keep in, keeping, of course, the great power competition that we've been working on, especially with the, the war in Ukraine. 
and defense cooperation with again cooperation uh, with the Ukrainians and Latvians as as key focus of our uh, of our mandate in the next three years. Excellent, and of course, our other podcast, one of our other podcasts, Conseil de Sécurité. Conseil de Sécurité. See, this Just is for why... those that did not understand Steve's French. Uh, is a joint effort between uh, RAS and uh, and uh, the CDSN. So we've been here for since Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon. Uh, we've learned that the uh, Latvian beer is good. We've learned that the downtown uh, old city is beautiful. Uh, we've had one day of rain and two two or three beautiful days. So it's been a really good trip thus far. We're here being led by somebody from ADM Public Affairs. We have uh, J.C. Boucher uh, from CMSS in Calgary, Alexandra Geku from the University of Ottawa, Marcus Kolga, and uh, Robert Baines from the NATO Association of Canada. And Robert Baines, uh, the NATO Association of Canada, is one of the partners of the CDSN. And we also have another minder from uh, ADMPA. Uh, and so they arranged all the meetings here. We are all here on our own grant dollars, so you don't have to worry about us being on a drunken hockey flight. But it's been really good. They've given us great access to the people we want to talk to. And so uh, I guess the first question I have for you, Justin, is um, what are the things that you came here wanting to know about? And have you gotten answers to those questions? So as I, as you know, Steve, I came in skeptical of the usefulness of sending so many forces, equipment, and personnel to Latvia and to the Baltics country in general in the context of the uh, current war in Ukraine. Because as you know, uh, the, the plan, the NATO plan is to bring a battalion size, uh, but battle group size to uh, brigade level in 2025, which means it's more than doubling the size of the forces deployed there. And of course, as you know, the Ukrainians are looking for all the equipment they can to uh, fight off the Russian invasion of their country. And so all the kit we can send to the Baltic countries, to Poland or elsewhere, could be obviously sent to, to Ukraine. So I came in with that, 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 that skepticism, especially given Canada's very limited resources. We have a hard time sending eight, uh, you know, leopards. So why should we send more to, to Latvia instead of, instead of Ukraine? So one of the things I've learned here is, well, two things that, that can perhaps counter that, that skepticism that I had at, at first. First of all, I've seen a very heightened uh, threat perceptions uh, from mm -hmm. the Latvians that we don't necessarily have uh, in Montreal or in Canada in general, being far from from that conflict. And, and from their perspective, although Latvia is a NATO ally and any invasion of that country would trigger Article 5 and thus probably get the United States to intervene, the, the behavior that, that, that Russia, the riskiness of Russia's aggression in Ukraine makes them very uh, less confident than they were before about the capacity to deter them from yeah. invading. And I've sort of asked a, a related question, which is, are they reassured by Russian failure and, and incompetence in, in Ukraine, or are they more alarmed by Russian riskiness? Because we you, people learn different kinds of messages out of the same kind of situation. And my own take has been we should be a little bit less worried about Russia's threat because they're pretty lousy wars, it turns out. But... They read the situation differently. The Latvians we've talked to read the situation differently because they see it as more dangerous because if the Russians are willing to do this, then they could do something else. And I haven't really pushed back going, yeah, but they're still staying, staying on the other side of that magic Article 5 line. They're not, they haven't really done anything, in fact. 
they've been so clear to not violate any NATO territory border, despite the fact that there's plenty of equipment traveling through Poland uh, that they that they might be tempted to strike. But they're closer, and they're going to learn the the lesson that's more dangerous, I think, uh, for themselves, which is that they're worried about Russian aggression. And, and to be fair, what the Russians did last year was dumb and risky, and they, they could do something dumb and risky again. So it does make sense that we invest in this in this area. And we don't know how the war in Ukraine will, will end, if it ever ends. And so we don't know whether it's going to be a Russian defeat, therefore a heightened sense of humiliation and a desire to expand the war elsewhere, or a military victory with, with an emboldened Russia trying to perhaps intervene elsewhere. We don't know. But the second most accurate argument I think I found here is that having that sense of urgency of bringing the battalion level to brigade level mm -hmm. forces uh, countries to invest in equipment, invest in personnel to bring that that level of, of commitment uh, forward. And given the fact that it takes years to force generate those, those kinds of kept equipment and people, it's actually a good idea especially those countries that decided to send to Ukraine these old equipment mm -hmm. and procure new ones for their uh, brigade or for their, par their their portion, their components or commitments to that brigade in the Baltic countries, it's a good plan. Now, the problem is for Canada's uh, as a framework nation is we haven't seen that. We've seen announcements of Canada giving money and, and equipment to Ukraine, but not the accelerated mm -hmm. procurement that would replace these howitzers, that would replace these leopards, that would replace this ki these kit. And what we've heard as, as well here is that, um, unfortunately, the soldiers here don't feel that they have the proper equipment to do their job. And that, in a, in a situation of heightened uh, retention crisis, is very worrisome in my mind. Yes. I mean, one of the challenges here is this was a good place to go because it allowed you to practice war. That The intensity of, of training is much greater here than in Canada. So soldiers want to shoot their weapons. They want to, they want to do those kinds of large-scale exercises. And now because of ammunition shortages, they, they can't do the same kind of stuff. Uh, on the other hand, I, there are benefits that they're getting from working with others. The other countries are bringing some of their best kit because they're trying to test things out. And so the, the Canadians are seeing some of the best equipment that these other folks are bringing. They're learning a lot about it. It's an exciting operation to do as opposed to being hanging out some part of Canada where they've been forever. But one of the things that happens if we make this larger, which is, again, the talk from going from a battalion to brigade is going to ultimately mean from having rather 800 troops we're going to have maybe 1,800 troops. Well, that means that the Canadians who go here will be coming here again and again and again. And some of them have already done two to three tours uh, here. And so then that become, this becomes a little less of exciting to a post as well. So that affects, again, retention. Do you want to keep going back and doing the same exact thing? And that raises one of the real questions that they really have to ask ourselves. I mean, the prime minister has already made a promise. The government is already working towards this promise of investing a lot of troops in this region. But that means that we'll be doing less of other things. That if we have 1,800 troops in Latvia, they're not going anywhere else. So I guess the question for you just then is, does that make sense as a priority? That should we be in one spot that will rule out going to peacekeeping missions in Africa and Haiti, which probably weren't in the cards anyway? It rules out other potential missions for not just a couple of years, but if we get to that level, this may be a 10 or 20 year investment because this tensions with, with Russia aren't going to go away any time too soon. Even if Putin were to be replaced, there would still be a need for this. And so we're making a long-term decision whether we thought we were or not. Is this the place to be? 
It's a good question. Uh, it depends on the political support, I would say, because is it a pro- if it's a priority, a bipartisan priority, because it could be a change of government uh, that could impact Canada's presence, as we've seen in op impact with the arrival of new liberal government, withdrawal of the CFP teams there. If, if there, there were a sense of political support of that mission for the next 10 years, maybe so. But it's always a three-year commitment or multiple announcements. We don't actually know how long Canada would stay. And there's no procurement for a long-term presence. And, and a, I don't sense also a capacity to sustain the quantity of troops by perhaps adapting the, 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 um, how reserves function in Canada mm-hmm. so a kid, they can uh, send more troops abroad. And the most important thing, I think, is that for Canada's foreign policy priority is the optics. Mm-hmm. So we want to be there. We want to be where it's sexy, where there's political capital to gain. And we don't know in 10 years where that place will be. Probably not in Latvia. And so there will be a political pressure to be elsewhere because this is how Canada's behaved in the past. And the best prediction of, fu- of the future to me is what we've done in the past. And we kept moving. Yeah. Those places, depending on where uh, Washington's attention was was mostly focused. For instance, if there's a ceasefire in, in Ukraine, it will be at one point at the end of this war. Every war ends at one point. Uh, maybe can- Canadians will be asked to deploy in Ukraine, to train Ukrainians, to, to, to rebuild that country. It's going to take billions of dollars. And Canada, maybe the Canadian government, whatever it is, will probably want to have a presence, a military presence in Ukraine. Can we do both? No, we can't. It. No, we can't do both. And that's a, really the best hypothetical, because I think a lot of the other options, I think the Canadian army would love to be in Latvia rather than being asked to go to Haiti or being asked to go to do some peacekeeping mission in Africa. Again, I don't think any of those in the, are in the cards. And I don't think Afghanistan or Iraq or anything like that's going to happen again. So the way the possibility would be if we're based in Latvia, then we can use that as a base of operations to do things in Ukraine without putting another 500 or 1,000 troops in Ukraine. Because once you're in the region, then you have the what they call the, the lock or line of communications. You have the supply chain going in. And so it wouldn't be that hard to go from Riga to supplying things in Ukraine uh, since we will have a stable relationship here. But and, that would also need proper equipment. Yes. So, because that would be an army, army-heavy commitment. Yes. You know? With, with, with uh, air defenses, uh, tanks, artillery, troops, infantry, etc. And we don't sense, although there's a long list of procurement on the agenda, it's been on the agenda for years when we don't see the end of it. So that's going to be tough to sustain. It, well, the, the biggest thing that we learned this week that will make it tough to sustain is there's not just the four uh, places that we started with, which is Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, all going from battle groups to battalions, which uh, to brigades, which is essentially doubling how many troops there are. But we're also getting four more, which is they're now having similar types of situations, maybe a bit smaller, but similar in Hungary, uh, Romania, Slovakia, and Bulgaria. And so some of the countries that are already contributing to our mission are some of those countries like Slovakia. And so they might want to pull their troops home. They might want to have other troops donate to their uh, efforts. So I think that poses a challenge because we need to force generate to this brigade size. We're not going to be the only ones contributing. The The very good news is the Danes are very aggressive here. And they, they're, I can tell you from the work I did on, on Afghanistan, they were willing to fight in the toughest parts of the country. They were willing to fight really well in the toughest parts of the country. 
so them being having them with us is great because they bring in great kit, which we are then jealous of. It might be that the Swedes, as they join NATO, end up deploying here. They're certainly looking around for places to go. And so this is one possibility. They have historic ties to, to Latvia. So if we get the Swedes and the Danes and we lose some of the other countries that are smaller or less interested, less capable, we'll actually get there. And that won't require us to be overextending ourselves because they'll bring some of that kit that we don't have because every NATO mission, nobody brings everything. They bring some of the stuff and they cobble together a capable unit from all the pieces. We didn't bring attack helicopters to Afghanistan, but we brought a medical facility to Afghanistan that everybody else used. So we don't necessarily need to have everything here. I do, I do want to share with you one thing that, that we did talk about, which is there seems to be a desire to move all of our tanks from Canada to Latvia and have them be stored here and all trained here. Operational. Well, all of them and had them cannibalize whichever ones to get the, the 20 operational, how many are operational. That, that would give us a, a bigger punch here. And then that would make Latvia essentially the place where our units go to train. As a, you know, in addition to Wainwright and other training facilities in Canada. But again, this put that would be a major change because you're suddenly having a large chunk of our military outside the country. We face increased demands for domestic emergency operations. So those troops aren't home to put out the fires, to deal with the floods, to deal with uh, the ice storms, whatever else may be coming thanks to climate change. So there are real trade-offs to be faced. And one of the things we kept hearing is that there has been a memo to cabinet, the results of which will be announced shortly before the NATO summit in Vilnius, uh, which is in July. And that should provide the commitments to do better here. But the question as always will be, will there be real new money attached to it? And if it's not new money, what are they cutting to make that happen? And that's all tied into the defense policy update. So I guess the question now for, for you is, given all you've heard the last two days, how are you feeling about the potential defense update? Because there's been a lot of skepticism about that it would say anything of any consequence. Now, now we see that there's a lot of hope that there are promises in there about Latvia. I expect to be disappointed. <laughs> I usually am with any of these announcements. First, for the lack of clarity of those announcements and the lack of details that, that can be provided and the lack of commitment outside of the optics. So we'll have a big announcement saying Canada is ready to do blah, blah, blah. We'll contribute more and we'll continue to work with its allies, something like that. That's for the, these words will be in that, in that speech. But what actually will DND do to solve its procurement issues, its retention problem that will that are key to achieve that level of commitment? What kind of political leadership will we see to try to gain support from other countries? So you mentioned Sweden. That would be a great pick for Canada as an eventual NATO ally to invest its forces in Latvia instead of elsewhere. Well, that would need some relationship between Canada and Sweden some preparation, some influence, a political capital to be gained in Sweden, try to convince them to come here, to convince the Spaniards to send more tanks to Latvia or to develop more forces, and for the, the Danish to be able to, to sustain, because the Danish, yeah, are, are providing a lot, but have a difficulty of sustaining it in Latvia in the medium term. And for Canada, it's harder because we need, we need to send that equipment uh, across an ocean. And that's why if we want to send tanks and it's one per uh, C-17, it takes a long time to bring them here and then to go back and then go. And so it's harder for us. So the more we can get, I think, heavy equipment from 
neighborhood countries which sure. be in, in our interest more and we should in my mind specialize on some niche capabilities where we could invest and make an actual difference it could be in drones air defenses or, or something else but we need to make those hard decisions and i do not expect the dpu to make those necessary hard decisions on that we agree uh i was not expecting much in the dpu it We'll see, you know, we've got a month now to wait to, for it to come out and then we'll find out whether they keep their promises. One thing that we kept on hearing was that Prime Minister Trudeau, when he was here, made promises. And unlike some of our allies who are here, those promises didn't immediately materialize in equipment coming off of planes. So I do think that we're burning a little political capital here that is, is unwise. I think uh, it's fair to say that some Latvians are disappointed by Canada's incapacity to deliver its, no. its promises. And that erodes political capital. I don't disagree. So besides those issues, you've been listening to the questions that other folks have asked that weren't really things that you were thinking about. Were there any particular questions that your colleagues asked that, that caused you to think about things a little differently or you learned something? One interesting discussion we had is how to convince Canadians that this mission is worthwhile and that we should contribute to it. And we've had debates because it's about how do you, should we, a lot of uh, folks were saying, well, we should talk to Canadians more about that mission and therefore we should gain more public support for that. And I've always been skeptical of, of this because the more you talk to Canadians, the more they learn and sometimes they you tend to give details that they don't know and therefore you don't get the support you were expecting. Yeah. So if you're asking them, uh, do, do you think Canada should contribute to, uh, to uh, NATO? They say yes. When they say, well, do you think we should uh, reach the two percent, they'll say yes. But then you tell them, should we double the defense budget and cut, you know, education funding or healthcare funding in, in exchange, or have a bigger deficit? Mm -hmm. They'll say no. Yeah. If you say, well, you want to commit to NATO, but have no capacity to commit to peace operations, despite the government's pledge to contribute to peace operations, they'll say no. So as soon as you go into the details, yeah. Canadians become more divided, just like any other society, and. I think what's more important is to get that elite level uh, consensus or, or, or agreement on what should be Canada's priority. Some countries have a five-year uh, planning for defense, and they do through bipartisan consensus towards the defense plans. That, to me, should be Canada's <laughs> objective. The problem is we, we politicize defense. Yeah. instead of considering it a national interest. And so it's hard to get the opposition parties to support or to take it seriously. They prefer not to know, to better criticize, than to know and actually influence for, for Canada's national interest. So, so that's a tough, tough one. Yeah, I, I definitely have learned a lot from the questions other folks have been asking. Each person has sort of their own, not quite agenda, but set of curiosities about the mission. And so it's I learn more when I go with a group than I go by myself because when, my, when I do go by myself, I'm, I'm focused very much on my research and my own particular hangups. But so I've been watching you ask these questions about, well, wouldn't we be better if we invested in Ukraine and not so much in, in Latvia? Why should this government make a permanent basing decision aimed at uh, Latvia? So if I put my partisan lenses on my head and I'm thinking I'm a, a liberal government, one way uh, to go about it is to commit long-term Canadian troops to Latvia and Ukraine in general, have a heightened uh, sense of urgency and, and, and uh, a plan to procure a lot of equipment to sustain that for multiple years and constrain any future government, say non-liberal government, into that mission, forcing it to having to cut 
those procurement processes, having them to cut the troops deployed, having them cut the, the, the defense budget in general because you've committed to it and, and there's a planning and, and allies are, are expecting that to come. So if, if the liberal government were to develop a plan towards the 2% in the next, I don't know, 10 years, it would be on the shoulder of the conservative government to cut that and to, and to renege that engagement, that commitment. And that, I think, would increase the political cost because what I expect for any future conservative government to do in terms of defense budget, if they come in power, will be to reduce that budget in order to meet the deficit that, that the liberal government has created. And it's easier to cut defense than to cut social spending. And so by institutionalizing it and increasing the political costs of reducing defense budget, I think it would make partisan sense to do it. If only there was that sense of uh, conception of national interest among the liberal party, which sometimes I don't feel they have. I mean, kind of like when the, the conservatives sold Laos to Saudi Arabia that tied the hands of the liberal government in ways that were very painful for the liberals. I think you're right. And I also think that tying any government's hands to being, to, 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 to being stuck in Latvia would be something that the, the army would like. Because it would be mean that a constant flow of resources going to the army, the, the air force and the navy might not be fans of it, but that's a bureaucratic, bureaucratic politics battle for another day. So uh, over the course of the past couple of days, what was the biggest surprise? Was there anything that caused you to, to really be to think differently about things, or just something you didn't know? Well, when I learned that we could last, we have the ammunition to fight off the Russians today for one hour, was a big surprise. Um, first of all, <laughs> sure, we need to send ammo to, to Ukraine, and I agree with that point, but perhaps it's a bad planning to, to just uh, have that capacity if, if your objective is to defend the country against Russian aggression. So either we don't think they're going to invade, or if we do, perhaps we should accelerate our ammunition production in Canada. The sense that Canada's economy is not prepared for the this international context we get, we're getting in, I think, is the second thing I, I can retain. And the discrepancy between what I've heard were the needs to defend Latvia and the uh, NATO's objective, uh, say, for, say for some Latvian officials, the idea is that they would need four brigades to defend that territory against a full-on uh, Russian invasion, but NATO's plan is to have two. And so there's a discrepancy. And so either we take it seriously and we do it well, or we do as we are doing it mildly because we're committed elsewhere in Ukraine. So whether we concentrate and create it, then focus in the five to 10 year time lane for Latvia would make more sense to me if it were taken seriously. I think for me, also the biggest surprises were that the Danes were investing so much here. I did not know that. Uh, a big surprise to me was the fact possibility of the Swedes getting involved here. So I think those surprised me. I'm not terribly surprised that the military says, well, we, we have X. I don't like to have two X in order to, to succeed here. So... I think I wasn't surprised as much, but I wasn't really expecting as much on the, uh, hey, they made promises they're not keeping uh, kind of thing. But to be fair, as I pointed out while we we're standing outside the van today, we probably still have the, I think, of the three. I can't speak to the Americans in Poland. I think probably the Poles are super satisfied with the Americans. But uh, comparing ourselves to the British and Estonia and the Germans and Lithuania, we are certainly not making news with our whatever district policy disagreements we have with so with with Latvia uh, post DPU yeah we'll see if the this yeah. memorandum to cabinet that you mentioned does not address Latvia's uh, desires yes fair we could 
yeah. start to see it in the news. Whereas we are seeing today or yesterday in the Washington Post, there was a piece about Lithuania and Germany arguing with each other about what the Germans are providing. And I do think there are the benefits of distance, which are also the cost of distance, which is we can't promise, okay, we're going to have a lot of troops based in Canada that can appear overnight. And so we have to be based here. Whereas uh, the British and the Germans are saying, well, our maximum contribution will be this, but they'll spend most of their time living in the UK or in Germany. That's not what the Allies want here. They want reassurance. And reassurance is the possibility of dead Germans and dead Brits, and now the possibility of defense. And I guess that's that was one of the biggest surprises to me, and was how clearly they, the conversation here has gone from deterrence. Because when I was here five years ago, you know, using the word tripwire was kind of rude. Because it's like, hey, we need to have dead Americans, dead Germans, dead Canadians, the possibility of those to deter the Russians. But now they're talking about, well, we were a tripwire. Our whole purpose was deterring by our mere presence to now defending. And I think that's something that we require some examination because, again, going back to Putin's behavior the past year, he has been deterred. Uh, there's, he's had ample opportunity, ample reason to attack NATO countries because of the support NATO countries are giving. But he's refused to do so. And he's deterred because if he were to open that up that door, then we would then use our military capabilities to basically sink every Russian ship in the in the Black Sea. And we may provide much greater air support. We wouldn't necessarily have to put any troops on the ground to help out the Ukrainians. So Putin is deterred by Article 5. He's deterred by the NATO promise. And if anything, the past year has probably made that more credible, both because we see him believing it. And because we see NATO unity in the face of what's happening in Ukraine. We're doing all this for Ukraine, who's not a NATO member, which, which would suggest that we do far more than that with but, NATO at stake. But that being said, if we plan for the next 10 years or 15 years, and this is what, what's interesting about that commitment, is if you want to deter or defend against Russia, Russia will still be here, its neighbor, in 10 to 15 years. It will probably have lost the war in Ukraine. This is the way I see uh, the most likely scenario. And will be some partition of that country on lines that we don't know at this point, but it will be seen, uh, perhaps not publicly, but privately in in the Kremlin as a defeat. There will be a desire to reconstitute Russian forces and the sense of humiliation and aggressiveness and revisionism will still be there. Mm -hmm. And the desire to re-become a great power that can be achieved only through the use of military force, because political capital and soft power has not brought what, what Russia wanted in terms of uh, outcomes, will still be there. And the only way to deter future aggression is not just to have that Article 5, especially the context where we could have a U.S. president that could be Republican, that could not care about East European countries, and that these countries will continue to put pressure on Washington and other NATO allies to have a significant military presence to actually uh, commit the U.S. and other countries to defend them in case of Russian aggression. And I think we need to plan for this. And one thing interesting I found in these discussions is the debate between should we post or deploy Canadian troops? That was interesting because the deployment is six to nine month deployment. And they get a better pay because they don't pay taxes, but they, they're far from their family. Uh, they have a curfew and there are some limitations. And some of the troops that have come there first here, that have come here the second, third time, may feel tired, may not want to come back again. Whereas a posting is a multi-year commitment where you can bring your family, you don't have all these or other, uh, uh, other constraints, and actually show to the host country 
that you're here for a long term because your people are here, have a house, or bring their children to, to school. A Germany-like situation for Canada during the Cold War. And if Canada were to take that commitment seriously and think, yes, we will be here in 10 to 15 years, it would make sense to increase the number of postings versus deployments. And this is something concrete that we could see mm-hmm. in the next few months or years, whether the Canadian government really think that it will be staying here for a long term. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I, I do think we need to move to sort of the, the model that we lived by during the Cold War of permanently basing troops. So they're, they're here for three years. They can do more advanced stuff because they're not constantly relearning, reconstituting. Their families can live here and you can develop real, real communities here. I think that would be a logical way to go. I'm not sure this government or the next government would make that kind of decision, but I did blog about this and I, maybe I tweeted about it, which is the big obstacle to that is the NATO-Russia Founding Act, which was an agreement we made in the late 1990s and the idea was there would be no permanent bases in the Eastern Europe. But as I've argued and others have argued, the NATO-Russia Founding Act is dead, 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 dead because seizing Crimea uh, amongst other Russian behavior violated that agreement. It's dead in your mind. It's dead. A lot of Western Europeans, say the French or Germans, are don't consider necessarily to be dead. There's a lot of debate in Europe right now. Should we construct European security architecture with Russia or against Russia? And that debate is still dividing political parties in Europe, I think, yeah, well, more than in Canada. I think the Russians, with, with what they've done in, in Ukraine, and particularly the barbarity of the war, have they've chosen, they've chosen for us. But I do understand that some people want to keep this agreement alive for the day where the Russians become reasonable again. I just don't think that day is anytime too soon. And shouldn't, this shouldn't be an obstacle. Uh, one person expressed the view that NATO doesn't want to be seen as the ones killing the agreement. And I basically said, we're not the killers. We're just the coroner's. Uh, declaring that the agreement is dead and the killer was Russia. And it was killed in 2014. But we're running long. You didn't want to do this because you wanted to hang out and enjoy Latvia. Uh, So the first beer will be on me. But Justin, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And we'll definitely have you on again sometime in the future to talk about your research and that kind of fun stuff. Next, we'll have uh, Lena Tamsetto's interview with Alex Heber. And thanks again, uh, Justana, for hanging out with me in a random hotel room when you could be enjoying the town. Hi, this is Lena Tamsito, assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. I want to welcome our guest today. Dr. Alexander Heber. So Dr. Heber has over 35 years experience working in mental health, first as a nurse, then as a psychiatrist. After a decade working with HIV clients at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, she enrolled in the Canadian Armed Forces in 2006 and deployed to Afghanistan in 2009. In 2016, she became the inaugural Chief of Psychiatry for Veterans Affairs Canada. In 2019, she was a member of the Ontario Chief Coroner's Expert Panel on Police Officer Deaths by Suicide. Dr. Heber worked very closely with with the Public Health Agency of Canada to develop the 2019 Federal Framework on PTSD. In March 2020, she led a task force for the Canadian Institute for Public Safety Research and Treatment to create online resilience supports for first responders and public safety personnel during the pandemic. The COVID-19 Readiness Resource Project is what it was called. In 2022, Dr. Eber appeared before the Mass Casualty Commission, investigating the April 2020 shooting events in Portapique, Nova Scotia, as an expert witness on the needs of first responders after a mass casualty event. Currently, she is leading creation of the Knowledge Hub, the Canadian Institute for Pandemic Health 
education in response known as Cypher. This is a federally funded project to curate and mobilize mental health resources for frontline workers affected by COVID-19. Dr. Heber has written two online courses on PTSD treatment and published and presented nationally and internationally on trauma and mental health in military, veteran, and public safety populations. She co-leads the Canadian Military Sexual Trauma Community of Practice and is lead author on the Glossary of Terms 3.0. Dr. Heber is a associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. Welcome, Dr. Heber, to Battle Rhythms Podcast. You're very Hi. impressive. <laughs> your very impressive bio gives us a sense of how far-reaching and impactful your work has been to support the mental health and well-being of our uniformed officers. But today, we have you here today to talk about Glossary of Terms 3.0. So I want to start off with the most obvious question. Why is there even a Glossary of Terms? Well, okay, it's a great question, Lena, and thank you for that uh, lovely introduction. So, you know... As you and I both know, and probably a lot of our audience knows, the language of mental health has different meanings for different people. So for clinicians and academics, words and their meanings that are used in mental health are used largely uh, for consistently delivering the best care and treatment to their patients. So accurate, commonly agreed upon use of terms and definitions, like, for example, diagnostic terms, are very, very important because it helps connect our patients with the appropriate treatment that they need. But you know what? Even among clinicians, meanings of terms can vary often across different professions. So for example, a psychiatrist using the term post-traumatic stress may be thinking of something a little different than one of his or her nursing colleagues or occupational therapy colleagues. So even within that realm, there can be differences in terms of how we understand uh, these different words and terms. Then if we start looking at the general public or the community, terms used to describe the experiences of mental health and suffering can be used in many different ways to capture their experiences or the experience of their loved ones. So how clinicians and academics and the general public use terms can really differ significantly. And this becomes important, of course, when we start trying to talk to each other about these concepts or these conditions that we're referring to. So Alex, having terms that we commonly use as professionals is very important for diagnostic and the ability to access the right type of services and, and treatment. Is it a problem or is it a challenge when, you know, the, the general public starts using a lot of these terms? Speaking about trauma and anxiety and depression is very common out there in the world. You know, was that a consideration when first coming up with the, the glossary of terms, how people are using these terms very in, you know, lay fashion? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's a, it's a great question. And uh, I'll actually talk in a minute about the history of the glossary and where it came from. But I think what you're raising is really important because, of course, we all take terms. And especially depending on what's happening in our lives and our own history, we will develop common uses for these terms, often maybe mm -hmm. with our own groups who, who we happen to be involved with. 
right? And that's really important because I think in a way that's what keeps language alive. When we try to come together to work together, I think that sometimes that can create big challenges. And that's exactly what happened and why the glossary of terms was first created. So if you can bear with me for a minute, mm-hmm. I'll give you a little bit of the history. So June 21st, actually of 2018, a private member's bill that had been brought before the House of Commons by actually it was uh, it was not an MP from the ruling party it was an MP from the opposition he brought a private member's bill what it wanted to do was to acknowledge that people working in certain professions in Canada had a higher risk of developing post-traumatic stress disorder and related mental health conditions than the general public and we already knew uh-huh. this We knew this from research, right? But this was about bringing this forward and he wanted this made into a law. Like this is pretty groundbreaking if you think about it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So in fact, um, this bill was passed into law in June of 2018 with all party support. And as far as I know, if we look around the world, it is the first law like this in any country. So oh, really? I, yeah. So I think, and again, perhaps someone's going to come forward and say, no, 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 we have one as well. But I certainly haven't been able to find any other country that has passed a law specifically related to post-traumatic stress disorder and acknowledging that there are certain citizens who are affected um, disproportionately by these mental health conditions just by doing their job. Mm-hmm. Uh So, yeah, so this was really, this was really quite something. So once that happened, there was works began the work to take that what was now law and, you know, create a proper framework around that law to lead that task. It was given to the Public Health Agency of Canada, and they were to develop what would come to be known as the Federal Framework on PTSD Act. So we're doing a lot of work and and getting together with different stakeholders. I was very involved in this work. It was actually very, very exciting. And the Act also mandated them to hold a conference to bring together stakeholders, all the interested, you know, representatives from all the interested parties to meet and to give information and to help with developing this federal framework. So that took place, that conference took place about a year later in 2019. So as as part of the development of the framework, was the glossary like an output of it or was it a supplement is was that one of the goals written yeah no it 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 actually was not part it was not stated it was not part of the mandate but as we got together and started planning this conference we thought about the people we'd be bringing together who again as i as i said earlier about you know when you just think about any mental health term here were these people who were going to be coming together some of them people with lived experience from their jobs as public safety personnel, some from their jobs as nurses or their healthcare workers who were working the front lines and and also we knew were were suffering disproportionately even before COVID, but of course that's Uh become even more apparent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And uh, as well as researchers, 
who had been doing research on this and clinicians and uh, federal government representatives. So all of these people were going to come together and we thought, okay, when we use even the term trauma or the term PTSD, mm-hmm. like what is everybody understanding that that means? So it was decided that what we needed to do was develop a glossary of terms that we thought were important for the people attending this conference to be able to share so that when one person used one of these terms, other people could could say, okay, I understand. The way we designed it was to really be in two columns so that there was one definition that was a much more the technical, again, clinical kind of more okay. Right. And the second definition was much more um, sort of the, the general public definition. So it the second column is not what, you know, you as a psychiatrist would be referring to, to understand what, for example, PTSD is, I, but it, it would, would sort of fill it down a little bit. Exactly. Not to make the diagnosis. Anyway. Right. I mean, if it is in fact something that I would use uh, say to to explain this term to my patients because mm-hmm. now of course we have this glossary which we didn't have before and in fact it's it's interesting Lena that's one of the pieces of feedback we've received from clinicians and researchers is that they found it very helpful to share that with the people they work with to help them. So again, so there is this shared understanding of these terms. That, that makes complete sense. I know, as I know, as a mental health clinician myself, you know, I have a very clear idea. I, you know, have access to resources and you know, knowledge and expertise to understand what a diagnosis might present as. But when working with patients and clients, sometimes that gets lost in translation literally so it i can definitely see people coming back to uh folks like you who who are behind this to say you know this is such an important tool for me to be able to communicate you know with people that i that i'm working with and this doesn't exist before it doesn't sound like not well there again there are many glossaries out there for sure and there are glossaries of terms but not to this reach and level. I don't know that there isn't some similar kind of glossary, but we couldn't find anything that would serve our purposes for our conference. So we decided we had to create one. So that was the first version was created. It was just printed out and it was put on on the tables for every member who was coming to the conference so that we had this shared document, a shared understanding of the terms. And, you know, basically we did a big kind of brainstorm for what are the terms we need to put mm-hmm. in the first edition. And that's what we did. So it just started off as a communication tool at this mm-hmm. conference. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us how it got to where it is today? Yeah, so I can do that. There's another story, if you can bear with me for a minute, though, that I wanted to tell, because one of the things we started talking about when we were thinking about, you know, how are we going to do this? And Uh just the fact that we needed it, right? Uh That we needed this glossary that kind of had the kind of plain language definition. And then, you know, what would be the more clinical type definition? What we talked about was the story of the Tower of Babel. I don't know if you remember that. It's from Old Testament. So this is really, this is the historical piece that goes way back. But basically that when humankind was building the Tower of Babel, I think it kind of threatened God. It's my interpretation of this story. And so what God did was kind of created all the languages of the world in the people who were building this tower so they could no longer work together. And that was the end of the tower. It did not get built. 
So in a way, what we were doing was we were coming together to do the opposite. Right. We thought otherwise, this could be like a Tower of Babel where we yes. have people coming together who are kind of speaking different languages, not understanding each other. And we didn't want to, that to get in the way of our, of you know, the work we needed to do. And so this development of a glossary where you, you get, you're getting everyone who attended the, the conference on the same page. I mean, clearly it was a very useful tool, especially with the objective of getting, getting you know, people that are in this area, you know, speaking common language. How did that shift to making it more widely accessible? So one of the main groups that was contributing to the PTSD conference was the uh, Canadian Institute for Public Safety Research and Treatment. And so they were also one of the first authors with me and a few other people who were, you know, involved in, in getting mm -hmm. this going. And they really liked this idea. And so after the conference, they took the glossary and it was published on their website. So, so it was available. And that was when we started, you know, um, getting feedback from people all over the place and also internationally, not just in Canada, saying that they found this and they were using it. And again, they really liked it. They liked the concept and they found it very practical and, and helpful. Uh, especially when they were dealing with clients or patients, or sometimes just talking to each other, or perhaps talking to their family members, trying to explain these right. terms yeah. that encouraged us to do um, another version. We did a, a second version, which was also uh, published on the website. And now what we are doing for called Glossary 3.0, it's our third version. Our, what we're doing, we're actually going to have it published in a scientific journal and in a special um, edition that's um, being created to highlight post-traumatic stress disorder. And as part of that, the Glossary of Terms will be published in that issue of the journal. So it'll be published in a, a journal and I'm assuming also made available on mm -hmm. websites to share. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is, I mean, our goal here is to make this as widely uh, available and as accessible as at all possible for everyone. So getting ready to move forward, forward with publishing Glossary of Terms 3.0, um, what is different about this updated version? Yeah, it's a good question. There's another thing I should mention is that right from the beginning, from that very first iteration of the glossary that we used at the, at the conference, this has been an effort, uh, a national effort where we've called on colleagues um, across Canada to help with developing these terms and the definitions. It wasn't just those people who were, um, you know, organizing the conference. We wanted our colleagues and we also wanted people with lived experience, including people who were frontline workers in especially public safety professions to be contributing to that, what we call that second column definition, that uh -huh. definition uh -huh. that is, you know, used by the public. So right from the beginning, we had this, uh, you know, we had this involvement of people who would be using this term, these terms. First of all, we've expanded it. I think we 
doubled. It's pretty close to doubled the number of terms that will be in Glossary 3.0. Again, having it published in a peer-reviewed journal makes a difference because it just makes a difference to, um, you know, how it's promoted. And hopefully it'll become even uh, further popularized and people will hear about it and use it. We'd, we'd love that. Yeah, and, and we'll kind of see what comes out of that. I mean, I, I think it would be interesting perhaps at some point to even try and have a, another meeting at some point to just talk more about developing a glossary like this and how, you know, what, what else could we be doing with it? So the Glossary of Terms 3.0 has more stakeholders involved. Mm-hmm. It has, oh, you said almost double the number of terms mm-hmm. and yeah. has a wider reach. So this is quite the journey that this little tabletop, you know, glossary, look quite the journey that it's taken from the conference to what it is yeah, that's, for, for yeah. what it is today. Yeah, that is true. And I think, you know, again, one of the things that we realized fairly early was this need to be, you know, looking at it and updating it, that this wasn't something that we could just uh, produce it uh, once and f- great, that's it, it's there. I mean, what we produced was great and that was Mm -hmm. helpful. But I think that this kind of, you know, revisiting it and updating it is actually pretty important. I mean, you know, if you think about it, just in everyday uh, popular language, uh, the new terms that are entering the popular lexicon Mm -hmm. that are are related to mental health. For example, think of uh, the term burnout you know how much should people talk about burnout before COVID-19 same with a term like moral injury which is you know now right yeah quite often and and again it was something you didn't hear earlier except uh you know in clinical circles yeah absolutely um or military sexual trauma which is another term that we're adding to um this iteration I mean it's Sounds like this is going to be an ongoing project because language does change. And one of the goals, I think, seems like the Glossary of Terms wants to reflect how language is being used out there. That's right. And again, with that ultimate goal of ensuring to make these terms really available to everybody, really accessible. We want everybody to be able to have a good understanding when people use these terms, because I don't think generally, if you think about in professional institutions, like healthcare, I don't mm-hmm. think people necessarily set out to be exclusionary, but because of the way we develop and use terms that we need for our work, those terms can kind of become that way, right? Absolutely. And yeah. so I think it's really important that we step outside of that and say, okay, but how do we make sure everybody's understanding to some extent what we're talking about? So that brings me to my last question. Do you talk about how we want to be, you know, as healthcare practitioners, be really open and inclusive in how we communicate with people, you know, outside of ourselves? So my last question is, why is the glossary so important for our defense and security community partners? Well, again, I can think back to certainly my time in the military, but also my my current work with public safety personnel in Canada, that we like the PTSD conference, but now on a larger scale, on an international scale, it's still incredibly important 
that people working in defense and security can understand each other and mm -hmm. talk to each other and understand each other. And here, in, in some ways, it's, I don't know if the stakes are higher, but they're certainly high, that we want people when, when we use terms that maybe we understand and we assume others do that we do have a common understanding. I would assume that in those circles, this has to be incredibly important that we start out with common understandings and, uh, you know, so that people can talk to each other and we can make sure and move forward despite any differences, that we can all move forward together on some really, really pertinent issues around defense and security. Thank you so much, Dr. Haber, for your time. Everyone stay posted. The glossary I believe is coming out in the next several months. And thank you for taking the time and to talk to us today. You're very welcome, Lena. Thank you. Mm -hmm.